This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Teachers Well. Teachers Well empowers educators with the skills and resources to lead school wellbeing initiatives that are responsive to the wellbeing and learning needs of all students. One of the resources Teachers Well offers is the Compass Journal, which is designed to support the wellbeing of teachers throughout the school year. The Teachers Well Compass puts weekly strengths-based reflective prompts and a series of systems-aware collaborative tools in your hands that you can put directly into practice. And the best thing, the Compass is date-free, meaning you can pick it up and use it at any time during the school week or the school year. You can purchase a Compass by visiting teacherswell.com. We want to thank Teachers Well for sponsoring this episode. Their founders are a pretty cool team. Hello and welcome to the Wagtails podcast. My name is Megan Corcoran and I'm the director of the Wagtail Institute. In this podcast, I invite some pretty cool people to come and have a conversation with me on all things trauma, healing, education and well-being. I started this podcast as I realised some of the biggest learning that has happened in my career has been through meeting really great people that are working in the field and having great conversations with them. In this episode, I am joined by Penny Netherwood, all the way from Leeds in the UK. Leeds is currently working its way towards being the world's first trauma-informed city, and the project is called Compassionate Leeds. Penny is one of the co-leads on the project, and she was so generous and jumps on the podcast to share what, what it looks like so far, what the plan is moving forward. It's really exciting to think about. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the 14th episode of the Wagtails podcast. Um, I'm actually joined by an international guest this evening or this morning for Penny. Welcome to the podcast, Penny. Hi, great. Good to be here. Now, I always start the podcast by asking the guests a pretty big question, and it is, who is Penny right now? Well, today, I suppose, uh, I'm all the way from the UK. Uh, I'm in Leeds in Yorkshire, which is in the north of England, centre of the UK. And I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. And and I think the interesting thing for us today is that I'm working as the health co-lead for a, a city-wide, system-wide programme of trauma-informed uh, development across services for children, young people and families here in Leeds. So it's lovely to be with you. I wish I was there with you in Melbourne, but uh, lovely to be here over the way. Oh, look, it'd be so amazing if you're in Melbourne right now, but I've also been thinking it'd be really fun to come to Leeds and learn from all of you soon too. Oh, well, anytime, anytime. You're very welcome. It's a pretty unique situation that we're in really, that we're recording a podcast between Melbourne and Leeds. But essentially what happened is, Penny, that some of your colleagues or some people from Leeds who are working on the Compassionate Leeds project, which is this trauma-informed project that we're going to be talking about. But essentially some of them turned up in a public webinar that I was running and I got really curious. I was thinking, why are there some people from Leeds here in this session? And then I got really curious once they told me about the Compassionate Leeds project. So I started reading everything I could, learning everything that I could. And then I really wanted to dive in and find someone I could talk to about this project further. And by doing so, people gave me your name. And here we are now. We're going to be recording a podcast about the Compassionate Leads Project. So I'd love to hear from you what this all is. You can explain it more than I can. Well, I didn't know the news had spread as far as Australia, but um, 
I'm so pleased it has. Compassionate Leads is the name of a strategy, but it's hopefully more than that. It's what we, it's our ambition to develop a more compassionate way of doing things and of being with young people, children, families in Leeds. Um, so it's a cross sector uh, strategic approach that we're going to be taking. It's not going to be short term. It's going to take time. And when I say cross sector, um, what I'm thinking about there is all the different kinds of agencies that we have here in Leeds that work with children, young people and families who are there to try and support and help them. So we're thinking about the education sector, schools, colleges, early year settings. We're thinking about uh, health. That's my bit of it. But that's not just things like child adolescent mental health. Uh, it's also all sorts of health services health visitors, school nurses, GPs, hospital teams. Uh, and then in the social care bit of our system, we're thinking about uh, social workers and the services for children who are no longer living with their families, but in some sort of care of the local authority, but also thinking about the teams that work with young people who are with their families and are needing a more early kind of help early help is what we call it here in in Leeds um but also uh and I think this is where the people you you met on your webinar fit in with our uh community-based organizations in Leeds we've got a really uh rich community-based or third sector offer in Leeds for young people children families and communities and uh, really keen to have all those different bits of the system aligned in this more compassionate way of being which is about a trauma-informed approach but we want to think not just about what we we want to think about the way people might be with people and make the way of doing it which is that where the compassion comes in um just wanting i suppose to to think about not just the side of trauma which is a word that for some people gets in the way of understanding what we mean by trauma-informed practice so that compassionate leads uh strategy name really helps to think about the direction we want to go mm, in. And I know when we caught up last week to start talking about potentially recording a podcast, you were explaining that Leeds and yourself are being really intentional about the language choice and the way the language is being used. So I'd really love to hear from you what trauma-informed practice really means and the way the word trauma is being used in Leeds. Mm. Absolutely. It did. I mean, the language, it's so central to thinking in a trauma-informed way. Uh, but sometimes just that word trauma-informed can be a can be a block for people. Uh, sometimes we we hear people say, what counts as trauma? Or what do you mean by trauma? Or, or oh, no, I, I haven't experienced anything like that in my life. People not kind of recognizing what, what might count as, as something that's been really difficult in their lives and had a traumatic impact. But also when we're thinking about the compassionate leads work, we're thinking about early on and prevention as well. So we don't just want to focus all our our efforts on when things have reached a point when somebody has experienced something that's had a traumatic impact on them. We want to think early on, too, about what can help prevent that when young people are having to deal with difficult adversity 
in their lives, what can help buffer them and protect them. So we are using the uh, term trauma-informed practice because it's it's well understood by lots of people, but also wanting to try and explore that language and find other ways. So compassion is one way we've, we've gone with that. But the language was really interesting. When we sat down a group of people across different agencies uh, in Leeds, sat down to try and write the compassionate lead strategy language was something we really had to think hard about because we all have in our different ways of working our own little terms and our own little ways of putting things which immediately can sort of I don't know change the the meaning and and exclude some or or others so uh often people talk about trauma-informed care and that isn't very applicable in an education setting uh or uh sort of therapy which makes something sound very uh health focused so we're trying to find words and and expressions that are more inclusive and also just more easily understandable um but it's really hard to always get that right but we are trying hard with that one one bit of that that was that we had a lot of thought about was um one of the I suppose bits of research bit of research massive body of research that underpins trauma-informed practice is from adverse childhood experiences really helpful solid research that has helped to drive this sort of idea around what can we do to to look beyond what somebody is struggling with and, and see where that's come from in their lives but adverse childhood experiences gets abbreviated to ACE and that's really difficult because it's not ace it's the absolute opposite and also for us in leeds the the aces research the adverse childhood experiences research really focused on what was going on in a young person's household and we know that houses families live in communities and communities live in our society and there are pressures and stresses and adverse experiences for communities as well as for families. Um, and for young people also, they spend a lot of time in schools, in colleges, in, in other parts of their communities. So we really wanted to think more broadly about adversity and not be sort of thinking just around ACEs for those, those sorts of reasons. And also because really important for us in wanting to, I suppose one of the things for me about being trauma-informed is about taking a strengths-focused idea of not what's wrong, what's strong. And then trauma-informed practice doesn't, the, 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 the name of that doesn't quite fit, does it? It's focusing on the trauma bit. So the compassionate leads bit, I suppose, is again wanting us to just tip more towards the strengths and what we can do. Um, but also for us, that trauma-informed focus in leads is around looking at the protective factors, at what's strong in the lives of young people, in our communities, and also in the system that we're seeking to, to shift towards a more compassionate approach, because it already is hugely compassionate. And there are great strengths and really brilliant practice in Leeds that we have as a fantastic foundation to build on. So that strengths bit, the protective factors that we're looking to boost in young people's lives to help buffer them from the impacts of adversity is really important too and maybe the trauma-informed practice sort of uh 
label doesn't quite capture that always in people's minds. It doesn't it doesn't make them think of that. Mm, I love that because it's really inclusive then too. It's not like there's just a pocket of people who have experienced trauma and here's some trauma-informed practice. It's very yeah. much about becoming a compassionate yeah. city as yeah. a whole, which is a really cool thing. And I'm a little bit curious too, how does a city decide to become a trauma-informed city? Like why Leeds? I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but I'm really curious. Like how does that decision get made and how does it start to roll out citywide? It, it is. It's brilliant. And I mean, the, what the, the, the plan that we, the ambition that we have in Leeds is really big, really um, impressive. And like you say, how to get there. I think, um, I think it's, it's come about by some strategic leaders in Leeds really understanding and being passionate about a whole system way of working. Um, and for example, one of the ways um, that has developed in Leeds at that strategic leadership level has been more joined up conversations with people across the system, bringing people together, connecting people up in the system, and then allowing the thinking to emerge from that. There's actually... Um, there's a systems uh, thinker, whole systems thinker called Roger Myron, who who lives in Leeds, I believe. But he's uh, known for Myron's maxims, which are kind of um, helpful guide phrases to whole systems thinking. Uh, and I think some of the senior leaders were very had, had been on some training with him, very aware of those. And the idea of connecting the system to more of itself really took off. And then the thinking emerged, and I think some of the um, senior um, health commissioners were also really aware of the benefits of working in an early intervention prevention way in the with younger children with sort of naught to fives, and wanted to find a way to extend that. But also, I suppose another big piece of that was those senior leaders were also really invested in listening to children and families and parents and carers. So they were listening to people from across the system and listening to the experiences of children, young people and their parents and carers. And what they were hearing were things like um, people don't talk to each other in the system. It's very siloed. It's very fragmented. Um, our children who've experienced difficult things are having more difficult experiences now because of how uh, the people they come into contact with are understanding them and responding to them. So a real sense that we could do much better as a system probably emerged out of those connections um, and then came up in the, in, in the UK. Uh, local areas have a, a plan for children and adolescent mental health. And so we have a future in mind plan. And that was uh, ready for a refresh and one of the priorities in there was included to be trauma and taking a more trauma-informed approach. So through those conversations, it got into that sort of strategy, um, which was brilliant. Then even more brilliant, and I, I don't know how this conjuring trick was, was, was pulled off, but one of the strategic leaders, um, by developing relationships and making the case and and including that feedback from children, young people, families and carers, managed to secure new investment to back this uh, approach, to back the compassionate leads approach. 
And that new investment is, is something that's led to sign up from senior leaders across all the sectors. So everyone's behind it. And that that new investment, that money, uh, which is going to uh, enable a team to be built, really gives power to that to that strategy. It means we can do something. Uh, it's not just words on a page, which I think is generally speaking what strategies feel like. But having that financial commitment really gives it the capacity to change. So I think it was though that's my understanding. Those those sorts of things. Mm, it's very exciting, and I'm curious too about this sort of uh, cross sector collaboration that's going to be going on because often we can find what's wrong in the system is actually that fragmentation going on in the system. And as you've highlighted, that's then the young person's experience that's impacted by that, by having different services or different practitioners using different language or having different strategies around how they work with the young mm-hmm. person too. So just wanted yeah. to know if you wanted to yeah. unpack that a bit further. It's, it is. It's really interesting. And I think that fragmentation is so interesting, isn't it? Because that can so often reflect what's going on for a young person or for a family. And it's reflected by us as a system of professionals just mirroring that and blaming each other or not contacting each other or you know uh, just working in totally separate lines so I suppose the first thing for us is um, that there's going to be a the team will be a multi-sector team so I'm coming from health other people in the team from come from education from social care from the third sector so we can bring that thinking but also take that thinking back into into those organizations. Um, and that thinking is that's re- a really good place for us to challenge our thinking about how we approach this, to check that we're not going down one line, one health line of thinking or one education line of thinking. But it's also about pulling us pulling together groups of people from across the sectors and across the agencies. And what's really interesting is for all that we're forever working in silos, it's people really like being together in rooms with people from across the partnership. Um, and, and if we do have a meeting, which is more just from education, say, Oh, we don't, we want to meet with people from the third sector. We want to meet with people from health. We want to learn from each other. And there's that real sense of knowing that we all bring something, but we can all get something from thinking with others, from learning from others that really can bring about positive change and make things much more, um consistent uh so i think in many ways that idea of bringing people together and allowing conversations to happen is one of the ways we'll be doing it um but also having that kind of uh within the team having strong relationships that mean we can challenge and say that isn't going to work in this sector for these reasons how can we how can we look at that? How can we think about that? So, so I think it's it's lots of listening, lots of learning, and that's just about opportunities to come together. Uh, which we've had some of those, and there'll be many more coming up too. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And something that stood out to me actually last week when we spoke was this idea of moving beyond trauma informed training and really taking on a more responsive approach like going in and finding out where are people currently at, what do they need, and really responding to where they are as opposed to just running some trauma-informed training. So I'm just wondering if you wanted to unpack that and talk about that one a little bit further too. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting. And what we get asked for all the time is trauma-informed training. And I totally get that. 
because often people think, oh, I kind of feel I should know what trauma-informed practice is or means because I'm a, I'm a whatever, I'm a, a nurse in a mental health service or I'm a, a learning mentor in a school or something. Um, but what we what we think is that although it's important when you're becoming trauma-informed to learn about the impact of adversity in young people's lives and how that might look and how you might recognize it, to be trauma-informed in your practice well, that change is going to happen in your work. So what we're keen not to do is just offer training that people get all excited and lit up by for a couple of days and remember it for a week or two. And then the system around them means they can't change in the way they want to do. Or the pressure around means you just do what you always do because you've just got to get on with a million things. So what we want to think about is is training even the first thing that is needed? Um, some teams we're working with are really identifying that the well-being of the team members is the place to start because particularly post-COVID, still a lot of people working from home or working from home more or teams not coming together as frequently or as informally as they used to. So quite a lot of disconnection, quite a lot of isolation and therefore less buffering for, for staff uh, in terms of the stressful experiences they might be having at work. So how can we think about well-being of the workforce first in some cases and then layer on to that learning about trauma-informed practice and how they can sort of weave that into what they do. Um, but for other teams, it might be more about the broader context. So say um, thinking about schools, maybe thinking about is the time right? What's going on for that school? Thinking about the timing and then thinking about the kind of more uh, strategic policy direction for that school. And maybe that's the place to start rather than training frontline practitioners who can't on their own shift a lot of their practice if it's not woven into the way of doing things within a school. And then the other thing we want to do is think about how we don't just dollop some training or dollop some focus on well-being with the team, but how we follow that up and layer up different kinds of interventions. So, for example, um, maybe sometimes we can try and weave some some better uh, routines for ways of working with a team into their routine way of doing things that protect staff well-being. But there's still going to be times when things become really difficult so how can we support managers to have the confidence to open up conversations about mental well-being with colleagues um, and then maybe on top of that how can team meetings shift so that they're more conducive to connection so trying to just sort of revisit different elements of practice in a team over time but crucially that real thinking about young people through a different lens is gonna take practice we're all particularly me coming from health, sort of mired in what's wrong. That's what we're here for. What's wrong? How can we diagnose it or label it or explain it? Um, and that shift to moving to think what's happened and what's strong isn't going to just quickly take hold. It's going to take time. So things like reflective practice, case discussion, um, formulation, uh, those sorts of opportunities so people can practice this and develop that skill and hold on to that lens so that's the yeah, that's the kind of responsive way we're trying to think that there's not a one size fits all 
And there's not just going to be one step that makes the difference for a team or a service. It's going to be layering it up over time. Um, and different teams wanting to start in different places, different organizations being at different points of readiness. Um, so, yeah, lots of different things to to go at, lots of things to think about, and lots of learning, which is really exciting. You know, lots of ways to learn from what we've tried and what we're trying to see how that can work better. It's huge. And it sounds like it would be a very slow process, but an effective one too. So it's huge and it's slow, but it sounds really effective because as someone who actually gets booked to run quite a lot of trauma-informed training, what I'm starting to observe is sometimes I'll be at the front of a room and I look around and sometimes the leader of that group, whether it's a school principal or say the director of a youth service, they'll be walking in and out of the room, taking phone calls, doing their emails, whatever it is, giving the kind of showing that they're too busy for this training or that they think they already know it Mm. um, and that that it's really just for the frontline workers to upskill in trauma-informed practice and that it's not for management. But what happens then is the system doesn't change or the culture of that workplace doesn't change. So I'm really curious about that too. So, yeah, I wondered if you want to just dive into that one a little bit. It is, and it's really interesting. I totally recognise that. Um, it is really interesting, isn't it? And I think we have to recognize that people are full up sometimes, aren't they? They're full up and this they're hoping this might be a quick win and some training and we can say we're trauma-informed. So we're really trying to talk about not being trauma-informed, but becoming trauma-informed and comparing it to uh, comparing it to gardening. Maybe that's a UK thing. I don't know how into your gardening you are in Melbourne. But, um, you know, you can go out into your garden and you can do half a day's gardening and you can come in thinking, great, I have now done my garden. Uh, A week later, you look out there, everything's grown, the weeds have grown, everything's, you know, looking a bit bedraggled because of the weather or whatever. And you, you have to keep gardening. You can't just do it once in half a day. You have to keep going out and doing it over and over again. And that's the sort of, I suppose, the way we're thinking about becoming trauma informed. You can't just go and do it in an afternoon. It's going to take time over and again. And there will be the weather. There will be those storms that happen um, that make it hard to maintain. Um, but that's we have to be realistic about the approach, I guess, that it's not going to be a quick, a quick win, this one. Um, and I think the other side, I don't know if you encounter this, the other thing we sometimes notice is when we share the trauma-informed practice principles, the can for sometimes people go, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, we're doing that. Oh, almost like, you know, who knew we were trauma-informed all along because we're building, we, we always make sure people feel safe or we we always make sure that we 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 work in a way that builds trust. Um, and I suppose we think that's a bit like you might have some gorgeous rose bush in your garden, uh, which is a real strength. It's a real, a, a real beautiful thing in your garden. But if it's, if the rest of it is all overgrown, um, while that strength is still there, there's still work to do. There's still more that could be done, things that could be taken out, things that could be added in. Uh, absolutely, that that strength to celebrate, but that's not it. Having, you know, one gorgeous rose bush in an overgrown garden, there's still more that could be done. Yeah. So, And it, I love that you've actually highlighted that sometimes it needs to start with staff wellbeing too. To be honest, that was actually a huge motivation for me when I started Wagtail Institute was I was really recognising 
it was kind of like mm. that time period that you're talking about with COVID. I was really noticing that the staff well-being was really declining. And often when we look at trauma-informed practice, we often start with the young people of that service. Or when we look at well-being, we look at the client or the young person of the service. So I was really motivated to look after staff well-being because often it's overlooked or it's the second thing or it's the third thing to be thought about. And yeah, I guess it's just really cool that Leeds is actually putting that as a priority. The way you're speaking about it is it's going to be a priority. Absolutely it is. And I think that for me comes back to the idea that what is going to be most helpful within a trauma-informed approach is relationships, is building capacity for safe, trusting, sensitive relationships with adults in young people's lives. And if the adults are feeling overwhelmed or feeling disconnected, then they're not going to be able to help uh, co-regulate a young person who's feeling overwhelmed. They're not going to feel able to connect with a young person if, if they haven't got that space themselves. And therefore, they're not going to be able to help a young person to kind of think about what's going on. Uh, so we have to start by helping the adults to, to feel there to feel regulated to feel connected so they're able to bring that to young people um that feels crucial doesn't it that feels really oh, crucial. definitely definitely mm. it's like the center of everything isn't it yeah and it's it's so not easy is it at the moment you know a lot of a lot of the grown-ups are struggling the cost of living crisis in the uk is really difficult lots of pressures within the within the system financially at the moment across all the different bits of the of the system for for children and young people so there's lots of things people are having to hold in mind and uh and yeah we also have to hold ourselves in mind and each other in mind and that feels really important as part of that compassionate approach it's not just about being the adults being compassionate to young people or or parents and carers it's also about people being compassionate to each other within the system. Um, we can, when we're under pressure, I think we can often get a bit, a bit irritated. Oh, so why isn't the social worker doing this? Or what on earth are the, you know, why isn't the child and adolescent mental health service doing more? Um, and needing to have that empathy and that compassion for each other in order to support each other, as well as for ourselves, as well as, you know, looking in and, and looking after ourselves. We can really do a lot to to think of each other, I think, as a system. Oh, absolutely. I love that. I'm a little bit curious, Penny, too. There's a tangent we can go down if you want to. But I was wondering, what did you do before you jumped on this Leeds project? What sort of led you in this direction to be where you are now? Okay, yes. Yeah, so a very straight, and I always think rather dull pathway, uh, no twists and turns or interesting uh, career tangents <laughs> there. Um, I've, I worked in as a clinical psychologist, so a healthcare psychologist in within a child and adolescent within a, you know, more than one child and adolescent mental health service um, in the UK. So very um, generic sort of role. Just never specialized. I wasn't particularly specialising in trauma, but working across the field really, uh, working with young people who maybe were presenting with neurodiversity people presenting with concerns around anxiety, depression, um, people in crisis, uh, these sorts of things. And, uh, and yeah, I, I did that for, for kind of over 20 years um, and wasn't particularly expecting to suddenly change path. But I had become, I suppose what I've noticed me is that 
a brilliant thing is there is now more attention to mental health difficulties for children, young people um, in the UK. That's really great. You know, that is really good that we're more aware of that now. But for me, one of the things that's been difficult has been seeing what I think of as a more in-child labeling, um, medicalizing approach to that. So, uh, and a reduction in the thinking around around why, around what's going on for a young person, uh, an increased focus maybe on the, the 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 sort of interventions being for the young person rather than thinking about the family uh, in the broadest sense, um, and finding I you know found that increasingly difficult. Uh, but I suppose the other thing was really seeing that often young people would have been struggling for quite a long time before they got to the sort of specialist mental health service I was working in and really recognizing that change could have happened earlier, not not necessarily therapy, but something therapeutic could have happened earlier that could have made a difference. Um, so yeah, when this opportunity came up, I was just absolutely excited to think about how we could take a more um, early prevention approach, but also thinking not just about what's going on in a young person and and expecting them to make all the change, but thinking about what's going on around a young person in the family, but also in the professional system, also in the community around the young person and how we could build up strength and um, and that kind of buffering uh, protective factors for young people, uh, not just try and do an intervention that takes the problem away. I suppose sometimes I think a lot of the mental health interventions are really focused on reducing symptoms that people don't want in their lives. So, um, you know, if somebody um, is having a lot of thoughts about wanting to end their life, how we can stop them having those thoughts or acting on those thoughts. But what about why they might want to keep living? What about what makes life positive and what brings joy into life? Uh, that wasn't so around so much in the mental health sort of thinking. Uh, and I think for me, one of the real benefits of working uh, with some of our community-based organizations is that they're absolutely focused on bringing the joy, bringing the energy, bringing things that young people want to do. So it's kind of, th it's not therapy, but it's therapeutic. Um, we've we've um, had the opportunity to um, use some of the resource for this program to create grants for uh, third sector organizations in Leeds, community-based organizations who are doing uh, really interesting projects to boost protective factors in young people's lives in a trauma-informed way. In fact, I think the person who you met on the webinar is really involved in this. My colleague, Sally Drinkwater, is uh, employed through the program to support those grant holders and others in the in the community organizations uh, sector in Leeds. Um, and really interesting projects using circus skills, using sport, using um, using sort of employment skills to kind of boost young people's, uh, yeah, boost the positives in their lives, building more support networks, um, just loads of really interesting work um, 
that's creating more strength, not just trying to reduce the problem. So from that, my background in child and adolescent mental health, that's just so lovely to, to be involved oh, with. It's so exciting. It's really, really exciting. And you're speaking so much of my language here. I didn't actually tell you last week when we met, but I actually have a positive psychology background. And I teach positive psychology as a subject at one of our universities here as well. So I've always been really interested in that intersect between trauma-informed practice and well-being science or strengths-focused work as well. So I really love what you're talking about here and hearing the language around the Compassionate Leads project too. Um, and it's just intersecting all of the worlds oh, I care about. And I just wish it was possible to do it all here in Melbourne. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. And I wish I could. I wish I could tell you the recipe for bringing it about but uh I think it was a few very uh tuned in and um very influ people who could influence through uh their relationships with other senior leaders it's it was about bringing about that senior leader alignment at the top on this ambition that made the difference but yeah I'm I hope you get there I hope you'd get there in Melbourne. It would be really good. Oh, it would be it? great. And I think I touched on with you as well last week when we were talking that we're doing okay in the education space in Melbourne, well, in Victoria as a whole. Um, so Victoria is a very education-focused state and it's a very wellbeing-focused state for young people as well. So a lot of schools have taken on either a sort of a trauma-informed approach or some of them have taken on a positive education approach where they're really looking at the application of positive psychology in their school system, which is really great. But it's sort of this lack of uh, integration between all the services or the lack of collaboration between services as well, um, like the lack of shared language or the lack of shared practice too. So I, um, I used to go to a lot of care team meetings for young people I worked with, and I'm not sure if you call them care team meetings in the UK as well, um, but you'd be sitting around a table and you'd have those services all butting heads and speaking a different language. And at the end of the day, it's the young person who's really impacted by the lack of collaboration between the yes. services. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is hard, isn't it? People are juggling different, I don't know, different, there's different language, there's different frameworks, there's different um, priorities and timescales. And it is really hard, but we can in that kind of lose empathy for each other and lose that curiosity with each other as professionals. And I think sometimes focusing on those points of disconnection and trying to find ways to, to come together, uh, can make the difference but that's not an easy thing is it that's that's you know that's really hard yeah yeah it's so that's why I really like hearing about the slowing down that's happening in Leeds I actually really like how slow and strategic it is and I think that's something that we could all be learning from all of this too is to slow yeah. down yeah I mean it, you know it is going to take time it is is going to take time and some of the things that I've been helped to think about by some colleagues who work in kind of organizational development uh I have a couple of colleagues in the organization I work with, um, John Walsh and Steve Keyes, who, who've done a lot of kind of whole systems working and organizational working. And one thing they've helped me to think about is lighting small fires. So, you know, it's, it's going to take a long time, but we can just light little fires, get this glowing in different places and hope that that starts to, 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 to sort of take off. But also looking for the containers that we already have trauma-informed isn't going to be a whole new way of doing things it's got to be woven into what we do so are the things already there be that a team meeting or a supervision context or a, a recruitment process or a, an assessment process or a 
or a care team process. There would be those kind of containers there that we could look to to weave in that trauma-informed approach um, over time. So that's been really helpful to make it feel that we don't have to sort of wash a trauma-informed approach over leads like some sort of, you know, wave going over it, but we can do it in little bits, in little places and find those existing containers that will hold this and and keep it keep it going. Uh, so that, that's been really useful, actually. Mm, yeah. So great to hear. There's so much strength in what is going on. Penny, I know we're getting close to the end of our time and I did let you know that there are five questions that I ask each guest at the end of a podcast, but I just wanted to check, was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we dive into those questions? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, now I'm, I, I know, I know that probably you would rather I had a gut response to these questions, but I have listened to a couple of your podcasts. So unless you're trying to change them, <laughs> oh no, definitely not. <laughs> I've had chance to think. <laughs> no, definitely not. And I'm pretty sure the last few guests actually have all done this to me, where they've uh, definitely had pre-prepared answers or they've heard the questions. At least. It's early in the morning here. I I wouldn't be very good at getting my gut reaction wouldn't be that. Oh, that's totally good. fine. Well, let's dive into them then. So the first one is what did you want to be when you were a kid? Oh, this is this is awful. I can only tell you the truth. Um I wanted to be a dentist. Um I really wanted to be a dentist. I liked science and I wanted to work with people, but I didn't like the idea of working shifts. So I thought, well, I wouldn't want to be a doctor or a nurse. I'll be a dentist. They just work in the day. That sounds good. And uh, and and this progressed. I got a place at dental school and I was going to be a dentist. And then I went and did some work experience. And I realized that children are frightened of the dentist and you can't talk to the people you're working with because you've got your stuff in their mouth. And I like talking to people. So I realized this was absolutely not going to be for me. Um, so I pulled out of that and went into psychology instead. And I still feel guilty because I'd also persuaded a friend of mine that dentistry was the answer for us all. And uh, she actually did go and start studying dentistry. And then she changed her mind <laughs> after a couple of years. I still carry some guilt for that. <laughs> Is there a dentist shortage in our leads? I don't know. I don't know, actually. But uh, yeah. Trauma-informed dentistry now is very interesting <laughs> to me. So uh, maybe I'll get back into the, the dentistry that way and find out. If oh, I actually really love how practical that answer was. It's all about the shifts, all about <laughs> the daytime work. Yeah. yeah. And I knew I wanted to be a mum. I always wanted to be a mum. And I thought, I want to work part-time. <gasps> Might not be able to do that if you're, you know, in other lines. So, yeah, very practical. Love that. All right. The second question is, what are your two top values? And it's deliberately only two. Oh, it's a, a really interesting question, isn't it? I think it must be really interesting to hear what people come up with. And I suppose for for me, I think the two are, I think they're almost like two sides of the same coin. I don't think that's cheating. Um, so one would be respect for individual differences, respect for the the uniqueness, the unique brilliance of each of us and what we can each bring and contribute and, you know, the different perspectives we all bring. I think that is, is really important for me, but the other is what we, the power of working together. It's what we can do when we all pull in the same direction. 
um, and all those differences become so brilliant, don't they? they? When you combine them together, that's what makes us function so well. Um, and if we're all pulling in the same direction, so much that people can do. So I think I kind of think of them as two sides of the same coin, that respect for individual difference. But also I really value the kind of the power of what we can do together uh, when we pull I love together. that. It's like, let's respect those individual differences, but let's also harness them as a group. Let's yeah. bring it all together. Mm, mm. All right. The third question is a bit of a silly one. It's a bit fun. So you might have heard this one, but if you're going to have a boxing fight, what would be your walkout song? I'm really glad this is imaginary and not real. Uh, I'd be trying to climb out that boxing ring, not stay in it. Um, this is the what I would. I am not good with coming up with songs off the top of my head. So, um, so the one I'm going for is 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 the 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 closest I've probably ever come to to boxing, which is watching a film. So I'm going with um, the Eye of the Tiger, which is not exactly original, but it has a place for me in my heart because. Uh, couple of years ago I was going to turn 50 and I had a challenge to myself I was going to be able to do 50 press-ups before I was 50 and every morning I have the tiger that's what got me into it and that's what made me do it so so that it is you know that is it is a fight song in that sense for me that it got me to do something hard but hopefully never in the box. <laughs> I love the story associated with that one and I love that it's a boxing related song as well that got you to do that it's a box. Yeah, it did. It did. You can't not keep going with that song. You have to keep going. I love that. The fourth question is, if you could collaborate with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? That, that is the easiest one because it's what I'm doing. It's all the people in Leeds. It's all the people across all these different agencies, the young people in the families, in the communities in Leeds. It's they're all alive and 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 all of them there. I think that's one of the most exciting things about the about the program that it's it's pulling people together and and so yeah, already doing it, which is amazing. Yeah. I love that. And the last question is, if you could make one recommendation as a step that everyone could take towards healing, what would it be? That's so interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose what I think about when we're thinking about the kind of more, more intervention end of this trauma work in Leeds is that there just isn't one step that works for everybody. There's different things that work for different people at different times. And what might work for me isn't going to work for you. And what might work for me now won't work for me then because it all depends on kind of what you need. And I suppose then that's part of it for me. It's kind of that stopping and thinking, how am I doing and what do I need? And taking it step at a time, because what you might need in one moment might not be the same a bit later. So kind of checking in and thinking, what do I need? But something about just little things as well. I mean, you know, going back to doing press-ups, just doing one more every day is where I got to where I wanted to be. It doesn't have to be a huge, big thing. It can just be a little thing, but keeping doing it. But it has to be checking in as well. What do I need right now? What is it that I need? And you've got to notice. And then what do I need? Or what do you need? You know, noticing with each other. What do you need? Um, so I think keeping it small and keeping it connected to what's happening right now and not worrying if what what worked for them doesn't work for you because that that would be 
that's because you're different and that's great uh and it's trying to find what works for you that wasn't one thing was it that's i want to talk a lot about this it's so valid too and it's such an important answer i think that idea of just taking one little step or just continuing to move mm. forward so important it's easier to manage isn't it when you just think you know can I do this? Can I do what was one thing today? What is one thing I can do that will help? You know, it doesn't have to be the magic wand we all wish for. Um, little steps get us there. They get us to the top of mountains. They get us into, you know, it's just little steps actually take you a long way. Uh, and sometimes you have to backtrack a bit, don't you? Sometimes it's the wrong, the wrong step. Um, so I think of it like, you know, if you you may not get this in Australia, but if I was to go for a walk where I live right now, I'd have to at some point cross a huge muddy puddle. Uh, and, and the way I would do it would be the different from the way you would do it, because you might gingerly nip across some little stones and I wouldn't be, you know, as nimble as that. I might have to cling to the fence around the side and I might step on one bit that's a bit wobbly and have to go back and try a different way. And I think getting through those muddy puddles in life is a bit similar. Um Take your time, step at a time. You can look at what other people do, but the way they did it will work for them and might not be exactly the same for you. So it's kind of working out your route through those muddy puddles uh, to the other side. Oh, what a great message to end on. Thank you so much, Penny, for that one. And I'm so excited about what's going on in Leeds and I'm really looking forward to following along and seeing where it all goes next. Really, really exciting times at the moment. That would be great. It'd be lovely. Yeah, to keep in touch. That would be and I'm sure there's going to be some more people in Australia now who may just hear this and may start following along what's going on in Leeds as well. Oh, well, that would be great. We have um, a website about to launch where the strategy will sit. It's called the MindMate website, which is a, a website around child and adolescent mental health in Leeds. But it's the kind of going to host some pages about our program. Not quite live, but will be very soon. So uh, that the mind mate leads would be the place. Oh, thank to you so much, Penny. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, wonderful listeners, for making it right to the end of the podcast. We appreciate you. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe, give us a rating. We'll be dropping a new episode roughly once per fortnight, so you can stay tuned for the next one. Thank you. <laughs>